I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. We will hit many of these verses individually as we go through, but I'd like to read the whole text to you before we start to look a little closer at it. Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Chebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God! Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up! Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and a household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. And he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of Zeharites was was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zeharites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribes of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, 
I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zedah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. May God add his blessing in the reading of his word. Amen. I have something to tell you today. A biblical truth. Sin will hinder your walk with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, sin will hinder your walk with the Lord. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been bought and paid for, your destiny is sealed, you're going to heaven, but let me tell you this. Sin, left undealt with, will hinder your walk while you're here on earth. It's not an end to the walk, but it will hinder your walk, and it will hinder your capability to experience the fullness of the blessing of God. Now, we're going to see a spectacular example of this in our passage today in the story of I and Achan, and we're going to see how we can deal with it. We'll see how they deal with it, and then we'll kind of transpose that into how we can deal with it when this sort of thing happens to us. We're in Joshua chapter 7, And while you're looking at that, let me give you a brief rundown of what we've seen so far in the book of Joshua. Now, we're we're reading the Bible uh, to find out about God. A lot of people read the Bible to find out about themselves. Our primary goal here is to find out about God. The great beauty of all this is when we read the Bible to find out more about the character and nature of God, we end up finding more about ourselves. Why is that? Well, because we are being molded and shaped. We're being conformed into his image. The more we know about God, the more we know what we're being conformed into. So we're being made into his image, and as we read about him, we find out more about ourselves. But it has to be in that order, not the other way around. Here's what we've seen about God in Joshua so far. In chapter 1, we saw the principle of sacrifice. We saw that God's greatest blessings come through great sacrifice. The greatest blessing of all, salvation, comes through the greatest sacrifice of all, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, we saw God's omniscience. We saw that he knows everything, everything in the past, everything in the present, everything in the future. We talked about the concept of the already and not yet in God's omniscience. Chapter 3, we saw God's omnipotence, how he is all-powerful. He gets them across 
uh, the Jordan. He holds the waters back. He does everything he can to make sure that they are, are going to be the beneficiaries of the promise he's given them. In chapter 4 and 5, we saw God's sovereign authority over everything in creation. In chapter 6, we saw God's utter and complete holiness. And chapter 6 is going to be pivotal to chapter 7. We need to keep chapter 6 and God's holiness in mind as we walk through chapter 7. His holiness gave Joshua and Joshua's army the victory. God was with them every step of the way. He was leading them, guiding them, enabling them. He was taking them to the promised land, the land that he had promised them. He was taking them to the holy land. And one of the points that I hope you walked away with from last week's sermon is the fact that it's the holy land. Sometimes I think we look at it as a title, uh, Israel, holy land. But it is the holy land because God is going to make the land holy. Uh, we, We just need to keep that in mind as well. So Joshua 7 is about the battle of Ai, which was an absolutely stunning defeat for the Jews. Uh, The defeat of Ai can be broken down into four elements. It was a remarkable defeat. We see that in verses 1 through 5. There's a response to the defeat in verses 6 through 9. There is a reason for the defeat in verses 10 through 12. And then there's the resolution of the defeat in 13 through 26. Now, the first service really got a big kick out of the fact that I moved from P's to R's. So we're kind of working our way through the alphabet with the alliteration. Are you guys appreciating that? I'll come up with maybe Q's next time. We'll see what happens with that. (laughs) So I I want to talk a little bit about I. It's about 18 miles west of Jericho. Most of it is an uphill climb. It goes up into the hill country of Judea from the Jordan Valley. uh, The elevation rises by almost 4,000 feet. So it's a fairly steep climb. I sits at the north of what we know as the Benjamin Plateau. It's a flat area immediately to the north of Jerusalem. And the reason that this is important to understand this is I overlooks the Benjamin Plateau. And if an army wanted to attack Jerusalem, the easiest way to get to Jerusalem was through the Benjamin Plateau. There were too many hills on the other three sides of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the largest and richest city in the region. I become strategic in and where it's positioned. I was a medium-sized city, had about 12,000 people in it. You know, that might seem a little large for us, but for what was going on in the region, that was about a medium-sized city. So the, the force that would be used to defend I would be about 3,000, about 25% of the population. I was first mentioned in the story about Abraham in Galatians chapter 12. Abraham uh, gets to Canaan, and he builds an altar between Bethel and between I. And it's mentioned a few more times in the Old Testament. It's in a very hilly area, making it kind of ripe for uh, this type of attack that Joshua's going to do, because hilly areas were not good to use chariots in. Chariots were kind of the tanks of the first century. They were fast, they were nimble, they were hard to defend against. So in a place like I, uh, chariots would kind of be removed from the picture. Joshua would have a better chance. And if you, t- if you take a look at the way these cities uh, are approached in the Old Testament, you see Joshua's strategy, which seems to be to take the middle of the Holy Land, to divide it so that the north and the south of, 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 of the country cannot unite and fight against them. So he starts with I, which means ruins, and we're going to see why it means ruins in just a little bit. I had the opportunity 
to visit the site that they believe to be I. There are a number of sites that they've looked at while they think they found it. Uh, when we were there in May, our group participated in an archaeological dig while we were there. Here's what the site looks like today. Uh, it's bordered by a number of residential areas, but they have tried to preserve the site because they think it's important. Our team got down to doing some very fascinating books with work with brushes and trowels and that sort of thing. Most of what we did was carrying rocks and, and that, uh, but it was a lot of fun. I was working at the site of a monastery. You can see I'm doing some very technical work there, kneeling down in front of a rock. Another member of our team and I moved that rock shortly after that picture was taken, and we found a hoard of ancient coins. Now, it's hard to see on that rock, but there's a little green dot uh, about the size of a tic-tac. And what had happened was we moved that rock, and we looked down, and somebody said, is there anything there? I went, no, I just see this little green thing. And everybody went, what a green thing! <laughs> and, and they ran over and picked up and said, that's a coin! And of course, I always thought coins were like the size of a quarter or 50 cents, but it was, it was minuscule. Well, they got pretty excited over that because it was embedded in uh, some plaster, and this was going to enable them to bring an accurate date to the site. Uh, so they started digging around, and then they found another coin. They got excited over that because they hardly ever find two in one place. And they dig around some more. They brought metal detector down, and they found three. And finally, the guy goes, it's a hoard of coins. And I went, a hoard? A hoard of coins where? And he said, right here. I said, how much is in a hoard? He said, three. Uh, so it was a little bit there. I thought there would be these piles of coins, but it was a hoard. And it, it was exciting because they took our names and they put them in the record for having found these coins, and they think it's going to be instrumental to... Uh, all I did was move the rock. <laughs> and uh, if it had been me, I said, look at that green thing, throw it away. Uh, but it, it was kind of neat. So, In chapter 7, verse 1, I, you know, that, that's what I is all about. But in, in chapter 7, verse 1, look at this. We hear right from the start that the celebration of victory over Jericho leads to a significant stumble immediately afterwards. We hear that Israel breaks faith, but it's the fault of one man named Achan. So we, we should see something very important in this, something important about the Mideastern mind, something important about a biblical principle as well. Let me talk about the Mideastern mind. Achan is the one who sins, but the text says Israel broke faith. So in Achan's sin... The covenant between God and the people of Israel has been broken. The nation was a collective. The nation was a body. We can liken it to the church. They were responsible for each other, accountable for each other, and accountable to God. The Mid-Eastern mind saw a nation, a village, a family, a clan, a tribe as one unit. When one rejoiced, they all rejoiced. When one grieved, they all grieved. When one did something dishonorable, it brought dishonor to everybody. So we see this Eastern mindset of community here. And we, we don't have that mindset here. We have an individualistic mindset. But they saw involvement with each other as involvement with community and them all being responsible and accountable for each other. So what happens to one happens to all. But we see a biblical principle here too. 
And it is the biblical principle of representation, where one man's actions can impact his family, his tribe, his, his, his village, even his entire race. And we see this in Adam's story, if you think about it. When Adam falls, he brings sin into the human race. Adam represents the human race. Just as Adam's fall represents the human race, follow me on this, Christ's sacrifice on the, cra- on the cross undoes everything that Adam does. Christ re- it represents all those who believe in him. Representation is a biblical principle. So the author sets the stage here in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, by naming Achan as representative of Israel in verse 1. Hold on to that thought. It's going to become important. I think the author tells us who the guilty one is up front uh, so that we can feel the tension as, as judgment closes in on Achan. And you'll see this as we go through the story. The last phrase in the verse is chilling. And the anger of the Lord burned against who? Israel. All of Israel. The people of Israel. So what happened? Israel had this long string of victories. They had come out of the wilderness. They had defeated all the kings on the eastern banks of the Jordan. There was one victory after another. They had been promised the land. And all of a sudden, we see this defeat. And this is the first element of of our defeat here. It, it, It is absolutely remarkable. It just comes out of left field, verses 1 through 5. Verses 2 through 5 tell us why the defeat occurred. I is small, so, so small the decisions made were, we're just going to send two or 3,000 guys. They, they send a small number of men to capture it. But look at this. There's, there's no indication that Joshua or anyone else has gone before the Lord and inquired of the Lord prior to the battle. Now, prior to every other battle, Joshua went into prayer. It may have happened, but the text doesn't tell us, and that kind of indicates that he didn't. So they're kind of out there on their own, and that's significant. Look what happens to them in verses 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. That's a significant number because generally a victorious army doesn't lose people in battle. They lost 36. And chased them before the gate as far as Shebedim. And they struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The defeat is absolutely startling. Israel runs away from the battle. And the author describes Israel with the same words that he used to describe the people of Canaan and Jericho. Remember? Their hearts melted. They were terrified. The first element of this defeat is that it is remarkable. Now Joshua, Joshua knows immediately that something's wrong. And so we see this in our second element of defeat, the response to the defeat in verses 2 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Now this sounds appropriate. These are expressions of grief over the defeat. Joshua and the elders feel responsible for everyone. They feel responsible for the defeat, and they're grieving. But look what they're grieving over. And you got to read this carefully and understand what's going on. Look at the nature of their complaint, verse 7 through 9. Alas, O Lord God, 
Why have you brought this people over the Jordan to all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before the enemies, for the Canaanites and all their inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? It's kind of like Joshua saying, why'd you bring us over here? Now we're going to die. And then what are you going to do, God? What are you going to do without us? Joshua, now we know this. Joshua is a man of faith. Amen? Joshua is a man who trusts God. Amen? But the defeat has surprised him. It's caught him off guard. So he goes before God, and he is brutally honest with God about how he feels. He actually comes dangerously close to making the same accusation for God that his forefathers made a generation ago when they were first at the land uh, at the border of Canaan. Remember? They said, why have you brought us here? They heard about the giants. Moses sent spies into the land. They came back. They said, there's giants in the land. We don't want to go in there. All the people got afraid. They started complaining to Moses. They started looking for another leader to take them back to Egypt. And they said to Moses, why have you brought us here to be destroyed? Joshua sounds just like that, doesn't he? Joshua may be commended for his candor and his honesty, but I think he needs to be reprimanded for his naivety because that's what's happening here. He thinks that the only explanation for the defeat is that God has not been true to his word, that God hasn't delivered on his promise. He thinks they lost because God abandoned them. Listen, this is what's happening here. Joshua and the the elders of Israel are consumed with self-pity. They're so wrapped up in thinking that God is not meeting their expectations. Did you catch that? They're so wrapped up in thinking that God is not meeting their expectations that instead of examining themselves, they question God. Instead of looking inward, they look outward. Now, isn't that an easy thing to do? Let's be honest with ourselves. When our expectations are not met, when things go exactly opposite of the way that we think they were going to go, when things begin to fall apart around us, it's far easier for many of us to blame those around us, isn't it? Question those around us. It's far easier to question God. How many times have you spoken with somebody who's been going through a hard time in their life, and they looked at you and said, I don't know why God is doing this to me. How many times have we ourselves ignored God's promises, set aside his word, and demanded that he live up to our expectations of how things should go? It happens. See, that's exactly what Joshua and the elders are doing. Perhaps if they had placed more faith and more trust in God, They would have suffered less heartache. I don't know that the consequences would have been any different, but they might not have struggled so much with it. Their self-indulgence is a poor response to the defeat. Instead of coddling them, though, God does something amazing. And what, what he does is he goes to Joshua just as bluntly and boldly as Joshua has come to him. And in this, we're going to see the reason for the defeat, verses 10 through 12. It's our third element. And we see this. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? 
He's literally saying, look, this isn't a time to be wallowing in self-pity. It's not a time for blaming and pointing fingers. This is a time for action. Don't lie there. Do something. Now, we, we wouldn't be surprised if Joshua would go, do what? What do you want me to do? Well, God tells Joshua what the real problem is in verse 11. Listen to this. It's not God that is the problem. It is Israel. They have sinned. They have taken some of the devoted things for themselves. Remember that warning from Joshua chapter 6? It was in verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. Did you hear that? Lest you take them and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So for the second time in chapter 7, we see that the whole nation suffers because of the sin of one man, and the consequences are absolutely devastating. Listen to this, verse 12. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. There it is again. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Listen, Israel is no longer able to stand before their enemies. God called them to be his representatives, called them to be his holy people, but we've already learned that those he calls, he also enables. He enables, but there are always guidelines. There's always some participation required in all this some participation in order to be the beneficiary of the fullness of his blessings. In Israel's case at I, one of them has violated a direct commandment. And as a consequence, the enablement of Israel to walk out the promises of God has vanished. It's gone. God says, get up. Get off your face and do something about this. The problem is not God. It's the sin that has crept into the camp. Keep in mind what we talked about last week. I told you holiness was a factor here. We talked about the absolute holiness of God last week and how he sends Joshua and Israel into Canaan to ruthlessly eradicate anything that is unholy. Everything that is unholy is devoted to destruction. God was explicitly clear about that. And immediately, immediately after they're given that directive in the euphoria of seeing the walls fall down, in the, in the headiness of seeing victory come to them and the presence and the favor of God, the same ungodliness that they are charged with destroying enters the camp. The thing that they were sent to eradicate comes into the camp and reveals their need for sanctification for consecration. The root cause of the defeat is that they are unholy and need to be cleansed again. Isn't that the type of danger that we face as Christians? Don't we face this almost daily? When times are tough, it's easy for us to cry out to God asking for help and deliverance, but when it's easy, it's easy to become complacent. It's easy to take God for granted. It's easy to go slack on our discipline. It's easy to minimize our our commitment to obey God and his word. 
It's easy to assume his holiness applies to others, but not necessarily ourselves. Yet we clearly see in the book of Joshua that God wants all that is unholy removed from his holy people and from his holy land. Both of them are metaphors for his church in heaven. People, we're, his people are the church. And the holy land is a metaphor for heaven. So God is uncompromising in his demand for holiness. It's not a negotiable thing. And now his people have tainted themselves. They've soiled themselves. Yet again, it seems like th- th- this, this pattern it just seems like it never ends. They, they, they've done it again. We've seen it all the way up to Joshua. We're going to see it all the way through the, the Old Testament. God's people are blessed. He blesses them. Um, they enjoy the blessing. Then they take him for granted. Then they sin in one form or another. And then, then we see what? Well, look at the text here. And, and keep in mind that Israel has earned destruction. God has mentioned this three times already in the passage, that they are devoted to destruction. But look at what they receive. This is the fourth element of our defeat, the resolution. Verse 13. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. This is huge. God tells them, to consecrate themselves again. He doesn't destroy them. He tells them to consecrate themselves again. Tells them to set themselves apart for holiness again. And that pattern starts over. God sets them apart. God blesses. They praise him. They get complacent. They sin. And God sets them apart again. Why doesn't he just wipe them out? Why doesn't he just destroy them? I mean, that's what they've earned, isn't it? You know why? They're his chosen people. They are his children. They are his body. And it's not just that they're his chosen people. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them with an unending love. He bestows grace upon them with an unending grace. What we see in Joshua 713, brothers and sisters, is grace. God's grace. Totally unmerited favor. Where destruction has been earned, God gives them salvation. It's incredible. You know what? There there are consequences. Consequences for their actions. We see them in 14 through 26. Watch how they develop starting in 14 through 18. God tells Joshua to assemble the tribes. Now, the way this would have been done, this is after the consecration, they would send representatives. There would be one man for the tribe, one man for the clan, one man for the family, uh, one man for the household. And God says he will choose the guilty one by casting a lots. Now, I always thought that was a little bit odd. It sounded a little too much a chance, but we have to view the casting of lots through the Mideastern mind, through the Jewish mind, the same way we did the concept of being a community. And the Jewish mind said that we're going to take these little bits of bone, we're going to write on them, we're going to put them in a bag, and we're going to shake the bag until one pops out. 
And the one that pops out is going to be the guilty one. The one that pops out will be the one that will influence our decision, whatever they were trying to do. And they trusted God to make the right one pop out. And what that did was that removed any subjectivity from making the decision. They didn't have to make the wrong decision. All they had to do was trust God to make the lots work out the right way. So they, they were actually a, a, a move of faith. They were saying, let's let God decide, and we will have a tangible, verifiable outcome in how this lot falls out. So in verse 16 through 18, in casting the lots, things narrow down to Achan from the tribe of Judah. That's kind of significant. We'll talk about that one day. Joshua says this to Achan. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now notice this. Joshua tells Achan to give glory to God, to give praise to God. And then he clarifies what he's asking Achan to do by encouraging him to confess, to confess his sin. Right here, we see that confession of sin is giving glory to God. Well, we can see, now, we, we could look back and I go, well, it's an Old Testament principle, you know, things were different back then. But you know what? We see the same thing in the New Testament. We see it in the book of John. When Jesus heals the guy who was blind from birth, and the Pharisees can't figure out what's happening, and they're upset over this, and they bring the guy in, then they bring his family in, and, and then they bring the guy back again. And what they do is in chapter 9, verse 24 of John, they say to him, give glory to God. And what they want the blind man to do is confess that Jesus is a sinner. But the phrasing is the same in the Greek as it would be in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, give glory to God. Have you ever considered confession as giving glory to God? How does confession give glory to God? Think about it for a second. It does. It's a recognition of his holiness. It's a recognition of our lack of holiness. It it acknowledges our need for salvation. At first, it's how we get saved. We recognize we need a savior. But after we're saved, it then is an acknowledgement of our need of sanctification, that God's still working on us. It's a proclamation that we have fallen short and are in need of God's grace. So verse 20 and 21, Achan confesses. He does it. He's stolen a cloak, some silver, some gold. The cloak is from Shinar. It's actually from Babylon. It's a very beautiful coat. They were noted for that. Today's dollars, we're looking at about $24,500 total value of what Achan took. Achan admits he took those things, admits that he coveted. Achan knew covetousness was a sin. Achan knew the command of the Lord about taking anything for personal use, yet he did it anyway. Now, we know the end of the story, so we think that's probably not a smart thing to do, but let me ask you this. What would you do for $24,500? What would you do for $24,500? I don't think that figure, even transposed back into the, the, the time of Joshua, I don't think that's by coincidence because it, it, it's just enough that it is on the edge of being a significant amount of money, but not too significant, okay? It's right there on the cusp of, well, it's a lot of money, but it's not, it's not going to do me for the rest of my life. 
And, and amid all the spoil of Jericho, which was a, a, a fabulously wealthy city, it must have looked like just a little bit to hold back. I mean, all the gold and silver they were collecting was going to the treasury and the tabernacle. To the treasury, it wouldn't be much of a loss. But to Achan, it could make a big difference in how he lived for the next couple years or so. You know what? Sin always seems like a good idea at the time, doesn't it? Folks think they can get away with it. They think if it's small, that God won't notice. That that's what Achan thought. And, and, and you know, I'm sure he thought that until he got those goods back to his tent and realized, what am I going to do with them now? If anybody sees me with this stuff, they're going to know where I got it. So what does he do with them? He buries them. He hides them. He can't show anybody. He realized that he had to hide them so that no one would find out. Okay? And that's the other, that's the other facet of our sin. Uh, the other struggle that some folks have with sin. They think that if no one knows about it, then everything will be okay. Their fear is not that they've sinned, but that somebody may find out about it. And they would be shamed. Don't let the neighbors know. Don't let the people at school know. Don't tell anybody. What they're really concerned about is preserving their pride. Their sin and their pride gets in the way of dealing with it. So Achan is exposed in a manner that can only be attributed to God. It's a miracle, and he confesses. Shouldn't that fix it? Shouldn't the confession fix it? Shouldn't that make everything right? And that's what confession is for, isn't it? For Achan, it's just not over. And what we need to learn from this is that God will make his people holy. God will wash their sin away. God will sanctify his children. And we see all the evidence of his plan to do that and how things roll out for Achan. Spoils brought out, put on display, and Achan and his family are stoned and burned. By, by who? By all of Israel. And in verse 26, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. It's an ironic coda to the story. We see a pile of stones on their graves. When's the last time we saw a pile of stones? It was over at the banks of the Jordan, on the western bank. They piled up 12 stones as a reminder of God's grace. And now about 18 miles away, there's another pile of stones as a reminder of God's wrath. So we see the fullness of God. Resolution to the defeat is complete. We've seen all four elements of the defeat of I. The remarkable defeat. We saw the response to the defeat. We saw the reason and the resolution. We've taken yet a look at another seemingly brutal story in the book of Joshua. I told you this was going to be brutal. Certainly we understand that Joshua was only doing what God told him to do. He was acting under his commandments. But let's be honest, because we live in a time and a culture that equates fairness with justice, don't we? 
And this just doesn't seem fair to us. It doesn't look fair to many of us. Didn't he confess? Shouldn't that fix things? Well, wait a minute. Why did the family have to be killed? It wasn't their fault. Couldn't they have just punished Achan? They had all these ingenious ways of punishment, lashes and all sorts of things. Some may think, this seems a little bit extreme. There are a lot of questions we can ask, and they're valid questions, but the real question that we need to ask here is, is God going to kill me if I sin? Is this what happens to people who sin? They get stoned and burned? Listen closely. Achan's confession did not relieve him of the consequences of his actions. He was still of Israel. He's still one of God's people. But God had told them that if they took anything for their personal use, for themselves, it would make the entire camp a thing for destruction. That was a promise. I think we have a tendency to think of God's promises as all things that are good. Sometimes God promises things that are not so good. This was a promise. If you take something for personal use, it's going to contaminate the whole camp, and I'm going to destroy the whole camp. And we know how faithful God is to his promises. We've seen that over and over again. So Achan's sin dooms the entire camp, just like Adam's sin doomed the entire race. But watch this. In an absolutely magnificent act of grace, God, listen, God allows one man to pay the price for the entire camp. Did you catch that? One man to pay the price for the entire camp. It's a little snapshot of Christ. It's imperfect. Achan is far from perfect. But it is a snapshot of Christ, a picture nonetheless. The biblical principle of representation that we talked about a little bit earlier is played out in Achan's story. Okay, I didn't see that before. But what is with the family? Why the animals? Listen, they were tainted by their proximity to sin. Sin was in their family. They were living with it. The text doesn't really tell us whether or not they knew. We can't make a judgment on that. But the tents were small. Achan had to dig a hole. There had to be a lump. Maybe they knew. Maybe they didn't. But listen, that proximity to sin was enough to doom them as well. God is so opposed to sin, so opposed to sin that his word tells us to flee from the resemblance of sin. We are not to live with it. We are not to tolerate it. We are not to minimize it. We are to avoid it at all costs. Yes, the punishment is severe. Yes, it is brutal. Every bit is brutal as the taking of Jericho. But God will not tolerate sin among his people or in his land. So does that mean God is going to kill me if I sin? No. No, it doesn't. There are differences between Achan and you if you're a believer. There are differences between Achan and you if you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It may be. But if you're a believer, there are differences between Achan and you. But we should nonetheless be serious about our sin. 
We've seen quite clearly that sin will hinder our walk with the Lord. We saw Achan's sin hinder Israel's walk with the Lord. They couldn't do what they were called to do because of sin. For us as believers, our destiny is assured. We're going to heaven. We're marked. We're set apart. But brothers and sisters, the choices we make after we're saved can have consequences here on earth. Achan's choices killed him. They killed his family. They killed his animals. The difference between Achan and you and me is that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. He is our guide. He is our counselor. He's our convictor. He will lead us away from sin. But if we struggle, if we stumble, he will lead us to repent with a contrite heart. And that will lead us to restoration. Repentance leads to restoration for those who are in Christ Jesus. Achan's confession leads to death. Our confession leads to life. It not only leads to life, we can now see that our confession leads to life abundant. We can walk in God's full blessing if we remain in confession before him, if we repent of the sins that we've done. We are in Christ, and Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. So God's given us this tool for handling our sin subsequent to salvation. God will not kill you, precious ones. He may take some of us home unexpectedly, but he won't kill you or doom you to hell. But he will make you holy. And we have to understand that. He won't kill you, but he'll make you holy. You can fight him on that one, but the resistance to God making you holy is only going to rob you of peace and joy. It's going to make your time here more miserable. So from Joshua 7, we learn that we do all we can do to avoid sin. And when we do sin, not if we sin, but when we do sin, we repent. We repent. I know there are some people who would tell you that you don't have to repent, that you're already forgiven. And that's a teaching that floats around out there. To those people, I would say, would you just please take a look at Revelation 2 and 3? Because every time that John, God speaking through John, tells people to repent. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. Telling the church to repent. So church, repent. Avoid sin whenever you can. But when you do fall, repent. And that's the lesson we take home for ourselves today. But what do we learn about God? We want to learn about God first. And this is an important one. Because it explains why all this seems so brutal to so many folks. We see in this chapter that God is wrath. We see in chapter 1 that he is grace, he is forgiving, and we see here in chapter 7 that he is wrath. And let me tell you something. God is both things to the fullest extent all the time. God doesn't phase in and out of being good and being wrathful. He's not this capricious God that we don't know which one's going to show up. He's gracious to those who are his, and his wrath descends on those that are not. The advantage that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is Christ stands between us and God. Christ has taken on the wrath of God for us so that we don't have to suffer. Now, if we understand that, if we understand that we are the beneficiaries of God's grace, that we're saved by his actions alone and are being drawn towards him, and that those that are not saved are going to have his wrath fall upon them, 
then there should be an urgency in our spirits to share the gospel with everybody that we can because we don't know who's chosen. And God has commissioned us to be messengers of his gospel. There should be a zeal in our hearts for putting God on display in everything that we do so that our lives become a testimony of the gospel that saves because God is gracious and wrathful at the same time. We want to be on the right side of that equation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. Lord, you are beyond comprehension at times, beyond compare. Lord, you are glorious. You are majestic. Lord, the the train of your glory fills the temple in heaven. What an awesome sight that must be. We pray, Father, that you give us a vision. Give us a vision for how serious sin is in our lives. Give us a vision and enable us, Father. Grant us repentance, Lord, that we might have these things washed away on a daily basis and our relationship with you would remain strong and vital and our sensitivity to the leading of your spirit uh, would, would be increasingly more important in our lives as we walk through our days, Lord. Give us a vision for your plan in our lives and your plan for your church. Give us a vision for leaving, living the gospel, Father, and putting you on display, knowing that even the vision you give us would be a gift of grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.